am not Trevor. If you're here and you've only been here for a few weeks, you're probably wondering where Trevor is. Well, if you look around, you'll probably find him. He has been out of town for a little bit, but he's here. My name is Vinod. I'm one of the elders here at Risen. And with God's blessing, my wife and our three kids have worshipped here for over 20 years, 24 to be exact, uh, which explains the gray hair. But it's such a joy to worship with you. And I, I got to say, for the last couple of weeks, we were listening online last week, and the Spirit, when the Spirit speaks through worship, it is really evident. So thank you. Uh, through the words, through the team here, um, it is awesome. Well, I get to build your anticipation for Pastor Trevor's return next week. I, for one, have appreciated Austin's and Tim's and John's messages for the last few weeks here, but I've also missed Trevor's voice. But our text today, we've been in James for, I want to say, seven weeks. This is our seventh message. We're in James 4, 13 through 17. So our message is titled today, The Pride of Presumptuous Planning. It is about boasting. If you look at your online uh, um, guide there, it'll tell you that. But if you have your Bibles, please open them. And if not, please look at your phones. I'm reading from the ESV this morning, though many of you I know prefer the NIV. I want to I take us back to about 40 years ago, a picture painted by my grandfather hung on our dining room wall where I grew up. It showed a wooden bullock cart. If you're not familiar with a bullock cart, it's a wooden cart that's drawn by cows or bulls. It was a familiar staple, kind of used to pull things like carts did, like uh, trucks did. Um, they had two big wheels and a wooden axle, and on the end of them, on, on the end of each wheel, there was a little piece of metal about three inches long. If those were to break or to fall out, there was catastrophe. Right? The cart would break. Lots of work to kind of fix it. Those little pins were called linchpins. When I look at this little passage here, I've come to regard it after studying it for a while as a linchpin of the, of the, of the book, of the letter. If we fail at these seemingly minor points that it makes, we may be in serious trouble in our spiritual lives. So James 4, 13 through 17 is critical to informing us believers about who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning that you use the spoken and, and, risen word, and, and the written words. Um, Lord, please place us in the right frame of mind here so that we worship you more deeply and to draw us into a deeper relationship with you, with those around us, with each other. Give us, we pray, a, a better understanding of your great work in us and the world around us. And Lord, let us be aware of your presence this morning, in Jesus' name. So James 4, hopefully you're there. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I have three main points this morning and then four plus one points of practical application at the end. I'll also ask you questions along the way. I'll answer them. Um, let me start with some context this morning. James is a practical book. Okay? It teaches us how to live a life that's devoted to following Christ. It's a wisdom book. 
kind of in the vein of Job and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs of the Old Testament. But James' application of wisdom tells me that all that I do in life should be an outpouring of my faith. All of it. All of those acts are then described as works. So if you wanted a, a definition of works, there it is. Everything that you do, if you have faith in Christ, is what a work is. You know, brothers and sisters, it's natural for us to be busy, right? And our busy, busy lives and our schedules kind of dominate our thoughts. But to make sure none of it gets out of hand, we make plans for career, for relationships, or for our families. James is interested in those plans today, and that's what he's got to talk about. James writes to the believers in Jerusalem as if he is writing to us, as if he's right here. He recognizes how those believers were all in about their faith when they first became Christians. Pastorally, he knows how they might have paid a price for being Christians initially. They might have lost some income. Not unlike us here in Los Angeles, as their life settled down, the cares of this world started to dominate. They, made, they started to think about making a living. They came to assume that making a profit in God's will was one and the same. Last week in verses 1 through 12, we heard some believers try to make their will God's will. In verses 13 through 17, some believers completely ignore God for their plans. These people dreamt of what could be to the exclusion of consulting God, to the exclusion of seeking his will for their lives. You know, to quote an old poet, Rudyard Kipling, he was British, forgive you if you don't, haven't heard of him, but he wrote a poem called If. There's a couple of lines here. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, that's a challenge for most of us in the church today, to not make things we're involved with more important than God. Jesus did not comment on the ethics of business, just to be clear. And James does not hear either. But in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus makes a clear separation between serving God and serving money. And then in the Old Testament, Ezekiel in chapter 26 and Isaiah in chapter 23, they were concerned with how business could overtake any other love, therefore becoming idolatry. So what is idolatry? Anything that you love more than God or that you place above God. Isaiah was also convinced, though, towards the end of chapter 23, that all of this activity could be redeemed for God. So there's hope this morning as we look at this passage. In verses 13 and 14, James has this to say. I'm going to read it again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Come now is another way for James to say, merchants, people, be reasonable. Do you think that it's okay to talk like this as faithful followers of Christ? But what is the problem? If we look at the plans, go back to verse 13, they look like plans that we might make. They appear to be thorough. They plan for the time that they would start their business, today or tomorrow, the cities that they might go to, here or there, the length of time that they would spend away, about a year, how they would trade to make a profit, but they assume that their plans would be successful since they are in control of each aspect of their plans. But there's something missing here, right? If you look at that one verse, what is missing? There's no mention of God in these plans at all. It is as if they do not know God. So then what are James's concerns with this? Well, if they're believers who have the appearance of Christians in every other way, like you or I do, James suggests here that they've forgotten God. They've forgotten to include God or they've explicitly ignored him, 
or that they thought that their will naturally lined up with God. All three of those are issues. To be clear, James is using planning for business or careers as the pressing issue of how do I make the money to make ends meet? But it's an indicator, a metaphor, or a euphemism for all of life, for any decision we're to make. The plans made by each of us for everything that we do, from career to starting a business, to relationships, to getting married, to friendships, and to starting a family, to church choice, and where we live, all of it, every part of it should be submitted to God. Notice I extended that list a little bit, and you're going to hear this again. Do you see how crucial this is? Every aspect of your life is what God wants to be consecrated to him. I want to be clear, such planning is not being put to shame by James. He's not saying don't plan, nor is he saying that it's wrong. Rather, he wants to know whether Christ is at the center of those plans. So this morning, I want to ask you, is he? Do we seriously consider what God wants when we plan? James' response in verse 14, 16, and 17 illustrates three main outcomes. And those outcomes are my three main points. And that's in seeking God's will. So I skipped over verse 15, if you didn't notice that. My first point is also the first outcome. As I said already, we set ourselves up for failure because we lack preparation for eternity. So if you're taking notes this morning, let me repeat that. We set ourselves up for failure because we lack preparation for eternity. Here's what verse 14 says again. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. COVID's been rampant since March of 2020. That's two years plus making the truth of this statement, you do not know what tomorrow brings, much more real. Many lives have been lost, right? We've lost family and friends. A few have been seriously affected with long-term illness and side effects, but we've been affected by being shut in because we're vulnerable. Life is unpredictable. So regardless of how much we plan, Proverbs 19.21 tells us, many are the plans of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Many years ago, my wife Elaine and I went to the northeast of India on safari to see tigers. We were thrilled to encounter one on the last day of our visit. We were there for three days, and the last day, we were standing in an open jeep with a driver in front and a mahout standing on the back with a stick. No guns, no weapons. And we come across this tiger. We're in, in, in a, on a dirt road with trees on either side. 15 feet away, we see this tiger in the trees. As we drive up and stop, the tiger stares. So there's a bit of a standoff here, and then he charged. If you ask my wife the details of the story, she'll tell you and highlight my very quick reaction time. All I can say is one of us hit the deck first. <laughs> so the mahout made loud, impressive noises. The driver reversed as if his life depended on it because it did, and we live by God's grace. But life is unpredictable. What I want to say here is that our current family of five may have well been a family of none. If you've been to the beach, and this is more to the point here, if you've been to the beach in Southern California in June, the thing called June gloom, you will have seen mists unexpectedly roll in really thick and fast, and they're gone just as quickly. You can walk through them, you can see them, but you cannot hold on to them. Like a mist when our physical lives are gone, There is no physical substance for anyone to hold on to. May we consider the gift of time given to us by God. Time is not something that you move backwards or forwards. It's not something that you measure very easily. A gift that we consume either profitably by seeking to honor God or waste by forgetting God. That time that these merchants were going out to plan, something that they won't get back ever. 
My prayer for each of us is that we seek to honor God by choosing to follow him always. Psalm 90.12 is a beautiful prayer. Here's what it says. Holy Spirit of God, teach us to number our days so that we may have a heart of wisdom. When we recognize that we live and breathe at God's will, the more we will desire to be like him and in his presence. Our desire to be sanctified or to be Christ-like will grow so that we prepare for an eternity with God. James appears to, to be asking here, not just what is your life, but what is your life in Christ? And it's, it's, it's good to kind of ask that question. Any serious consideration or reflecting, reflection of our lives should raise that question. And really what, what, what we should ask is, how do we come to be in the circumstances that we're in? I do not mean whether you're married, whether you, where, where you live, whether you own a business or a company, hold a desire, a senior corporate position or a church position or any job, whether glamorous or not. Instead, we should ask ourselves, is there consistency in the two halves of our lives? What we should be known for is our consistent appearance to the world on a Sunday morning and everywhere else during the weekday. For some of us, there is no difference, and that's fantastic. But we have some great examples in our body, those whose walk is consistent in the two halves of their lives. They're spiritual, and they, work, and they walk in the secular world. One family who many of us are, know and have been, we have been deeply encouraged by are the Qurans. Joe, who's a relatively new believer, has a passion for the Lord that shines through in every aspect of his life. We as a church, as you may know, have been blessed by both Joe and his wife May every Sunday morning. Through their business, through their work in the church, Joe serves faithfully, and so does May. Um, Joe also participates in the family business, but if you asked either Joe or May what their motto for their business is, what they would say is, as the Lord wills. You should ask them after the service if you know them. They live out the gospel, the good news. The gospel message is compelling. And if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you listen, may you choose to follow. If you're unsure of where you stand, may you rekindle your relationship with him. The human mind, our minds, can only digest small pieces of information. This is a known fact, right? Small pieces of scripture at any given time. Our challenge then is to see ourselves positionally in the arc of the gospel message. When we hear this piece of scripture, where does it fit in? Where does it fit into our lives? So you may say to me, well, why do we need to know? It is so that scripture can sharpen our vision of the gospel so that we see our need for God. Well, what do I mean by this? Let me say this a bit more emphatically. It is vital for those of us who are in the faith, whether young in the faith, whether middle-aged or older in the faith, to see how the small, seemingly minor pieces of the gospel fit together for our sanctification. Sanctification is a word that means our growth towards godliness, to be like Jesus. Reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us that God imagined his creation. In the beginning, God's actual word created this reality around us. He's spoken into being. By his very word, all of this around us was created. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that Jesus is the word, and through Jesus, all things were created. Because God created Adam and Eve, us, in his image, we inherited some of God's attributes, including our creative abilities, our ability to plan, to write, to speak, to think, to reason, to build. All of those are gifts from God. So if you think you have those independently, sorry. God created all of nature, human beings, and all living things to be in fellowship with him and with each other. This is the reality of God's creation. A reflection of God's perfect and unchanging will. When Adam and Eve's prideful sin removed us from the garden, 
removed us from fellowship with God. God sent his son to be in fellowship with us, to restore that fellowship, to give us the chance to follow him, the choice to follow him, so that we have the forgiveness from sin through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and to start the process of restoring all things to the way that we were in creation. Revelation 4.11 tells us this, Worthy are you, Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. God has eternity to do his work, has had eternity to do his work, and has eternity to do his work. It's present continuous. There's no measure of time for eternity. But we have just one lifetime, three score and ten years, the Old Testament tells us, 70 years, that God gives us to come to him for salvation and submit it all to him. Time is off the essence. Our lives are a vapor. It is this, with, with this understanding and background that James 4, 13 through 17 is written. So here's the second point of my text. James' second reason or outcome for not submitting our plans to God, it is because we become sinfully arrogant. We become sinfully arrogant. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, says verse 16. But what is boasting? Simply put, it means that we think and attribute all we do to our own abilities. We don't look at God. We say God gave us this gift, so it's ours. It also means that we put our trust in ourselves implicitly with no attribution to God. Boasting in ourselves comes from an arrogant or a prideful heart. Here's what the word that James uses in Greek, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it, is the same word that's in 1 John 2.16. It's the same word that's used for pride. It tells us, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Pride is the source of original sin. Jonathan Edwards had this to say about pride. The first and worst cause of error that prevails in us is spiritual pride. This is the main door through which the devil comes into the heart of those who are zealous for the advancement of Christ. It is the chief end of smoke from the bottomless pit to, the dark, to darken the mind, mislead the judgment, and the main handle by which Satan takes hold of Christians to hinder the work of God. Well, you know, much is said about what pride is. There's a lot of definitions out there. We can give examples from our lives about people who we think are prideful. It's never directed at ourselves, usually. But what pride is not is rarely spoken of. And what it is not is not humble. It is not selfless. Biblical humility is exemplified by those who rightfully recognize their place in relationship to God. If you get the idea here, is unless we are subordinate and in submission to God, we are prideful. James calls us away from pride. All such boasting is evil or sinful into submission to God. When we do not submit to God, we return, and this is how extreme it is, we return to the Garden of Eden, to the fall. We make Christ's sacrifice useless. Therefore, in many ways, it is practical unbelief. Daniel 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in Babylon, Babylon was a beautiful city. It had the hanging gardens. We can't picture it now because there were no pictures at that time. He glorified himself for the success and beauty of, of Babylon. He said certain words, and immediately God's retribution came to him. He spent years on his hands and knees eating grass. That's pretty extreme. And that was done to a pagan king. Now, if God can do that to a pagan king, he will not suffer his children, you and I, to be arrogant. Note how all such boasting is evil towards the end of that verse. This includes anything that we do not attribute to God. The success of our business, our grades in school, something new, our job performance, and all of our gifts, whether spiritual or physical gifts, ability to make things, build things, do art. 
Verse 17 is like a chorus. It's a repeatable, memorable verse. And it is also the third point. It's his final issue with not submitting up our praise to God, our plans to God. What we choose not to do can also be sinful. So here's the third point. The outcome of knowing what we need to do and still choosing not to do it or submitting it to God or not submitting it to God is that we may forego his plan and his will for our lives. These are described as sins of omission. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's what verse 17 says. If we choose to do the things that, we, that we're specifically been instructed to do, lying, cheating, stealing, you know, those are the sins that we generally think of. Or murder. These are the sins most of us talk about. Did you hear about that robbery up the street? Did you hear that someone was killed? Did you hear about that infidelity? We fail to recognize the sins of omission. Why? Because it's hard to look inside ourselves, but it's also hard to identify them. Those we know where we ought to do, but we choose not to. Those are sins of omission, by the way. These are subtle sins, harder to identify and harder to acknowledge. For example, did we ignore helping an elderly neighbor? Something a bit closer to home, did we visit someone when we were still sick of co or COVID positive, thereby potentially infecting them? Did we choose not to go to Harvest Home yesterday to help out and volunteer when that, when that email was sent out months ago by Austin? Look, I'm putting up my hand here because there are times when we have chosen not to go. Right? And I feel guilty after the fact, but that's the reality of it. You know, um, more subtle things like cheating even a little bit on our taxes or our expense reports, running our taxes in such a way that we, should take that we take deductions that we should not. For most Christians, these are the sins that trouble us. For we think God's power is on our side. That's the subtle nature of these sins. So what if we use our talents and put down the other person? God gave me these talents to use. How can I function if I don't have that position? I need it so that people understand my authority and power. We need that bigger, newer car home or thing. Many times our sins here want to lead people to glorify ourselves instead of God. Look, God clearly has a plan for us. As the verse says, 17 says, he has the right things for us to do. How do we know what's right though? Well, you study God's commandments. Here's what Jesus says in John 14, 16. These are the red letters. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But keeping those commandments involves a knowledge we have to study. If we do not choose to do what we know to do, how can we be faithful to God's will? And once we know what to do, we've, we're obliged. We've got to do. We can't ignore. In verse 16, oh, sorry, verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, the Lord wills. If we live and do this or that, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This is where I come to the points of application. Right? So James is not asking here. He's asserting with the understanding that we people are committed believers, or those people are committed believers in James. They should know how to seek God's will. We should know as a people how to seek God's will as well. In what? In what situations? The answer is almost everything. But there are some things that we know to do right, that are obvious where we don't need to seek God's will, and that's like taking care of family. The godly alternative is to ask if the Lord wills. The point here is that we need the right mindset. It's not saying the words. It's dependence on God. It's more important than saying the right words. When Elaine and I got to know each other about 27 years ago, 
Yeah, I just said that out loud. The most popular thing among our peers was to seek God's counsel on the timing and the substance of marriage. So how do we seek God's counsel or his will for matters that are of great practical importance in our lives? Right, including finding a job or moving to another state or moving elsewhere. Practically, all that is required for us is to stop and ask in prayer and then wait on God for a response. That's all that's required. What I want to share with you in closing, though, are four plus one points of application. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. In summary, we need to know God and have a relationship with Him. Here's what it says in verse 4. Who, that's God, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires to be in relationship with us. We need to first have a relationship with God before we can seek His will. That's why He created us. And that's why He pursued us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ. We do, not need to know the Lord. We, we do need to know the Lord, for this is His will. But why? Well, if you want an answer to that question, look at John. One, John 1, 12 to 13 says this, All who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God by His will. So speaking as a parent, personally, we pursue our kids right, in different ways. We want a relationship with them. There's nothing more important than seeing them joyful and satisfied in the right things. Going back to that word in 17, the right things. We do what's necessary to protect, to love, to serve them even, and to tell them the truth. And look, we're imperfect people and parents. But God, but God is perfect. He's the perfect parent. On the other hand, he desires a relationship with us because he loves us perfectly and he desires the best for us. And that's the part of faith that sometimes we miss in our plans. The second, our attitude matters. This is the second point. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We need to be thankful. It's a direct outpouring of thanks for Jesus' sacrifice for us. And here's a good way to remember this. Right? I haven't stolen this from anybody. Without an attitude of gratitude, there's all pain and no gain. So let me repeat that. Without an attitude of gratitude, there's all pain and no gain. For context, look at the 40 additional years that the Israelites had to wander in the desert because of their grumbling. And I'm smiling here a little bit because we've all got examples in our lives of people who grumble. Perhaps it's us. Because of their grumbling and their bad attitude, they wandered for 40 years. But we, so we need to be different. And this is our third point today. Um, third point. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God. Do not be conformed to this world. I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to be different than the world, living by different standards. You know, sometimes I'm convicted when I'm passing somebody on the freeway and speeding. I do. And I don't think that's okay. Right? That's a simple thing. We need to live in the world but not be off it. Look, I know some, there's, there's constant struggle against the, what the weight of the world is, what, what it tells you on the issues of, of sexual morality, on the issues of pretty much anything that you do. It's different. We need to be different, even though the world can be overwhelming. And how do we do this? Well, silence, solitude, prayer, and scripture. This is what we speak about every Sunday morning. Silence, solitude, prayer, and scripture. These are disciplines that we could easily adopt. 
If you want to know a little bit more about um, sins of omission, there's a great deal of detail in, in Romans chapter 12. Right? James is great for a summary, but if you want more detail, go look at Romans chapter 12 and study it. Maybe that's part of the community group stuff that you, you do on Tuesday or, or Sunday or, or Wednesday. Seek the Lord's wisdom. This is point number four. Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How do we do this? Again, consult scripture often. Look at the wisdom books. Ask other believers to hold you accountable and seek wisdom from those in the, in the community here. There's an implicit point there. Become a member and attend on Sundays, right? That's how you get to know people in the church. But we need to to understand our place in the gospel so that God can sanctify us and make us more Christ-like. You're probably saying at this point, look, I've heard four points, but you haven't told me what you said you were going to tell me at the beginning, which is the practical issues, like getting married. You ended up being, with being more Christ-like. I want you to turn with me now to Matthew 6. So if you haven't opened your Bible to this point, this is a good time to open up to Matthew 6, 31 to 33, and look at Jesus' promise here to his disciples. This is after he's taught them to pray, and here he he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If I commit to seeking the Lord's will, his promise, his promises, everything in my life will be changed. Everything. He also promises rest for our souls. Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do we trust in these promises? I think the answer is yes, but do we live as if we do? That is a question. Following God's will does not mean a life without trials and tribulations, but we will have peace in those trials as Jesus promises rest for our souls. It really comes from knowing God. You know, this, when I look around the room on a, uh, on a Sunday morning, it's not really a room, but outdoors, and I tend to do that, either standing at the front or sitting in the congregation, I look around. I look to see who's here. And a lot of times I'm encouraged by who's here, right? So a few of our long-term members come to mind when I start to think. Kind of a strange point for it to, it's kind of a strange point for it to fade because I was just about to, to mention a few members' names and I was hoping that was not a sign. Right. But Dora, who's not here this morning, but Rose Dosti, who's not here this morning either, give her a call sometime. Barbara, sitting right here, Janet, Stephen Nichols, Janet Zopko sitting right next to Barbara up front here. Andre and Sylvia. Look, any of these people, if you want to talk to them. They will encourage you. I have been deeply encouraged in my life by them. But let me present you in closing with a question for you to think about. What is it in our lives, in your life, that we need to consecrate to Christ and ask for his will on? I want to ask you to seek God's will on two decisions today, in August. Actually, not today. So you've got a month to actually consult God's will. So pick something in your life that you can pray about and look for his will on. And then pick something for the world, the church, our church, that you, will pray, that you will pray about as well. 
And the way to do this for me is really to, to ask, tell somebody else what I've done, what I'm, what I'm praying about, so that they can hold me accountable. I'm going to be at fr- up front after the service. Come talk to me. Tell me if, if, uh, if you've made that decision today or if you've, you're going to make it in a while. You know, I'm so grateful for all of you. We're in a church community that is blessed. We're blessed spiritually with faithful staff and leaders, with great teaching pastors. We're blessed physically with health. But I can also acknowledge that we could focus on God's blessings more. Right? As we ease out of our COVID fog as a congregation, as we all desire more fellowship, let us fix our eyes on the Lord, seeking his will above our own. <laughs>